0: Philippians 2, verses 1-13. through 13. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, by being in full accord and of one mind. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to live the life of a servant and to be humble and obedient even to the point of death. Thank you that we are able to come into your presence because of that sacrifice. Please help us to understand what your word has to say. Please open my mouth to speak what your word has to say clearly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, many times whenever I read this, or when people read this passage, we focus a lot on... um, the fact that Jesus emptied himself and what it means that Jesus came in the form of a man, lived a perfect life and died for us, a life of humility and the glory that followed that. Um, but sometimes when we read it like that, we read it as a theological treatise to explain to us a little bit more about what the incarnation looked like. But this passage is more than that. It's a model for us in how to live our lives in a church. And it's also a model for us in how to wait for God's reward. Uh, This morning we're, we're going to be talking about, and I believe the point of this passage is that because Christ suffered to save us, we must work out our own salvation. Because Christ suffered to save us, we must work out our own salvation. What does it mean to work out our own salvation? Because that sounds almost heretical. How can we work for our salvation? Isn't that something that God did? How can we? It sounds like we have to save ourselves through our good works. Um, but that's not what this passage is saying. Um, but also, I want you to hear that you know, if we are calling, if we are believers, if you believe in Christ, that should look like doing good works. That should look like avoiding evil works. There is a working aspect to what it means to be a Christian believer. But I don't think that Paul is teaching us here that we merit in any way our salvation. The work that God has accomplished already. I think the problem that we often have. With passages like this where it says to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's because we limit what it means, what salvation means. What what does it mean to be saved? Sometimes we limit the term salvation to mean justification. We do not contribute to our justification. This morning I had a slip of my tongue and said we do contribute. But I didn't mean that. (laughs) We in no way contribute to our justification. That was a once and for all act that Christ did on the cross. Uh, It was where Christ accepted the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And so that the righteousness of Christ can be imputed to us. And so that we can stand before God the Father and be declared innocent. Because what Christ has done. We do not contribute it to it, and we receive it only by faith alone. But salvation is not limited to just our justification. When you hear salvation in the Bible, think of it in terms of the order of salutis. The order of salvation, which includes our calling from eternity past. The atonement, regeneration, faith, justification, sanctification, adoption, and glorification. All these are different aspects of our, of our salvation. And in some ways, we do contribute to some of these different aspects of our salvation. We contribute. We, there is work involved in sanctification. There is work involved in being engrafted into a community and living out what it means to be adopted into a community. There are aspects of salvation that we contribute to, but also don't hear me that we merit any of those aspects of salvation. We don't earn more sanctification. We don't earn a better justification. All these are gifts of God which he accomplished in us and is working in us and through us. Also, I'm going to be talking many times today about a reward. Sometimes that's hard for people to hear because we think in terms of like, wouldn't? sometimes we think, why would God give us any better reason to serve him and love him than disinter, not self-interested thankfulness for what he has already done? But the Bible gives us many, many reasons throughout Scripture for following loving God. He does use fear as a motivation for serving God. The Bible does use the promise of reward as a motivation for serving God. The Bible uses, if you serve God, then it will make our community better as a reason for serving God. The Bible does use models for righteousness that we should follow that model. Paul says that the Philippians should follow him as he follows Christ. And that's legitimate. And so what we're talking about this morning doesn't negate the fact that we ought to serve Christ from from thankfulness for what he's already done. But we can also serve Christ because we know that whatever we can give up for Christ, God can give us back so much more. In this life, through the healthiness and wonderful love of our community, but also in the life to come, in the resurrection, mysteriously. But the problem is, oftentimes we work for the rewards of men rather than the glory of God. How often do we work for the rewards of men rather than the glory of God? But. Paul teaches us this morning two things. In response to that, he teaches us to work for the glory that God gives and wait for his reward. And he also teaches us that Christ suffered for the glory that God gives and we are his reward. Work for the glory that God gives and wait for his reward. Before this passage, Paul is talking a lot. About the tremendous suffering that he is experiencing through serving Christ. Because he serves Christ, he has been thrown in jail and is awaiting trial that would determine it whether he lives or whether he dies. And yet, even in the middle of that suffering and that unknown, he doesn't know if he'll live tomorrow, he is still able to give glory to God, to serve God, to preach the gospel among his guards, and to Say To live is Christ and to die is gain. He wants to live so he can serve the Philippian church better. But he is also very excited about dying and meeting Christ. Running the race to its successful completion. And he mentions that they have the same... Thing to look forward to. He says in verses 29 through 30. It has been granted to you Philippian church. That for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him. But also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. And now hear that I still have. Paul is not the only one that's going to be suffering for the sake of Christ. So in response to that he reminds the Philippian church of their position in Christ. He teaches them that if there is any encouragement in Christ if you are encouraged by the teachings of Christ and by the promises of the resurrection, if there's any comfort from the love of Christ, if you experience Christ's blessing and thus know the overwhelming love that the Father has for you and overwhelming grace, if there is any participation in the Spirit, if the Spirit is working in you and through you to know the love of Christ, if there's any affection and sympathy for Paul himself that he knows that they have, even though he is lonely and in chains and only surviving because of their generous gift, he asks them to complete his joy by being of the same mind as him, thinking about suffering the same way he does and having the same love for Christ that he does by being in full accord with one another and loving each other and being of one mind, unified in their thinking. He tells them to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now we hear that and we think, oh, I got this. I'm not selfish. I'm not conceited. I don't have a flashier car than any of my friends. My house isn't the biggest house in the neighborhood. I don't have the shiniest watch. Um, I'm definitely not selfish or conceited. But Paul says to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And I have to ask you the question. The jobs that you are applying for, the promotions that you're pursuing... The schools that you and colleges that you are applying for your for your children, have you ever thought, is that best, not only for me and for my family, but for this community, for this church? Because if what the church needs never is, has never even entered into your mind. And if you are not working with your own hand and even organizing your schedules and your time around what what do people need so that we have something to share with anyone who is in need, you're working from selfish ambition or conceit. Instead, Paul tells us to, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We like to put barriers around things like that. We like to say, oh, I mean, Paul can't really mean that we have to always put everyone's interests above our own. We would kill ourselves doing that. And what if someone takes advantage of that? And to that I say, yes, that is really hard. And it looks like dying to self most of the time. But Christ never commanded us to take up our self-confidence and follow him. Christ commanded us to take up the cross and follow him. To make matters even stronger, Paul is telling them to do this in the midst of a congregation which is suffering, a congregation which is experiencing external persecution and suffering. Sometimes we think we're off the hook if we're suffering. But Jesus reserves his greatest blessing for those who are suffering and still are godly and generous with their time and with their money. Paul can say this because he knows that the promises of Jesus are true. Let's read some of the promises of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, 20 through 26. Um, You can turn with me your Bibles if you want to, but I'll read it. And Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus promises that the people who are weeping, those are the ones who are blessed. The people who are hungry, the people who are poor, the people who can't even keep themselves alive, the people who are persecuted for the sake of Christ, who have lost everything, the ones the world calls cursed, Jesus calls blessed and so for anyone who is weeping for anyone who is suffering for anyone who has experienced this terrible sorrow that they wonder how could god still love me because he is this such terrible suffering has come into my life god sees you god knows you god hears you when you cry out to him how long and for those who have nothing better to look forward to in this life who has lost everything they have the greatest hope in the resurrection when Christ returns and he makes all things new and he himself will wipe your tears from your eyes But the scary thing is that Luke 6:20 20 through 26 doesn't stop at the blessings from the poor Let's continue 24 through 26. But woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are are full now. For you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Sometimes... As Christians, we like to pretend that just because we're Christians, that we are the poor people that Jesus is talking about. And while we can be poor in spirit, we can't experience all the comforts and blessings and security of this life and still take all the blessings that Christ has reserved for the poor. I'm not saying that to condemn the rich. I'm merely asking, what are you working for? What reward do you really want? Why are you working so late into the night? Why are your kids busy every single night in school programs and sports? Why are you going into such tremendous debt over your house? What are you working for? Because if you're working for comfort, if you're working for security, if you're working for the accolades of your bosses and co-workers... You could get that reward, but that reward will blow away in a second. Where ought our priorities where should our priorities be? We should be investing in the kingdom of heaven, which will last forever. You know, it's easy to give away $1,000 if we are making $10,000 a month. And that makes a huge impact on the church budget. And many wonderful things can happen to it. I'm not dismissing that. But it is really, really, really difficult to give away $100 if you're making $500 a month and you don't know where your next paycheck is coming from. One has a big... That one, even though it doesn't make as big an impact on the church budget, makes a huge impact on the kingdom of God. And God sees it. And He can do wonderful things. I think sometimes when we hear this command or this word to... uh, Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In humility, keep others more significant than yourself. We hear this as a burden to us. We think, oh, that just means that I have to work so much harder than I'm already working. That I have to add another thing to my already busy schedule when I'm already about to pass out and die. Remember the busiest one we person we've ever heard seen in our lives, the one who was ministering and loving to people constantly, said, "Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest." Jesus Christ called Himself the Lord of the Sabbath, and also remember that the greatest act of love in history, the one that changed the universe was not pretty. It was messy. It was bloody. It was our Lord Jesus hanging shamefully and naked on the cross. Loving people doesn't have to be polished. Loving people doesn't have to look good. We don't have to have spotless homes in order to invite people into our homes. We don't have to know how to fix sorrow for a terrible loss before we can sit with people and grieve with them. We don't have to love from a position of strength. We can love others and be weak at the same time. We can ask for help even while we are waiting to each other's tables. We can share with each other how stressed out and how grieved we are. And ask people, hey, can you come over and take care of my kids? That's what it means to be adopted into the community. That's what it means when we make our vows for our baptism. That we will love and serve the community. That's what we have taken vows to do for one another. That's what biblical hospitality looks like. It looks like loving people in our mess and not having to put on a mask all the time. Because that mask is heavy. And Christ's burden is light. And it leads to fullness and it leads to a genuine community that can help each other in real and wonderful ways. It's earthly wisdom... That demands that we love each other with our leftovers. That we take care of our own needs first before we can give away whatever else is left. To make sure that we are provided for before we can provide for others. But the wisdom of God says seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. So I ask again, what reward are you working for? Let the Lord of hosts protect you. Let the Lord who owns the cattle on a thousand hills provide for you. Give your best to the community and trust that the community will give their best to you. Because we we have taken vows to do that for each other. And so, and work for the glory that God gives and wait for His reward. But we also find from this passage that Christ suffered for the glory that God gives. And we are His reward. Sometimes the glory that God gives has to go through tremendous, tremendous suffering. Before, by His grace and power, He makes you through who He wants you to be. Sometimes that looks like death. It looked like death for Jesus. But Paul says, have this mind among you, yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You have been united with Christ. You have received Christ's righteousness. You have received Christ's spirit who empowers you to live like Christ lived. You have been united with Christ even in your thinking. And Christ is the head of this church and we are his body. And so what does the head of our church look like? What did he do? Christ, the eternal son of God, who existed before the beginning, became a baby. He submitted to his parents discipline when, he didn't, when they didn't know what was best for him. The king of kings and lord of lords became a common laborer. The one through whom all things were made listened patiently when an angry customer demanded a full refund because he didn't like the look of his table. At the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4, Jesus was tempted to take the glory of all the nations for himself and bypass the suffering he knew he would have to endure. Yet he refused. He is the ultimate example of the one who took the lowest seat at the table and waited for the master of the feast to say, What are you doing? Come up here and sit at my right hand. He taught us. He loved us. He healed us. He pitied us. Even when we are sheep who are running away from Him. He has forgiven us for every single one of our sins. And I know what kind of sins I have committed. On the last night before He he was killed, this is how He behaved. Let's read from John 13, 1-5. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. What did he do then, people of God? Did he lord it over his disciples? No, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He took the form of the lowest servant. And his humility didn't stop there. Because he submitted himself to the judgment of the Sanhedrin. He allowed godless men to beat him, strip him naked, and hang him on the cross. The one through whom all glory and honor and praise was due was shamed completely and accursed. And he died. And he bids us come and join him. How can Jesus bid us to take up our cross and follow him? It's because Jesus trusted the Father. Jesus knew that death was not the end of His story. That even though He gave up literally everything to become a servant and be in the form of a man, He would rise up again and glory And he would be given the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. And we who come to him by faith, we by God's grace get to partake of that. We get to receive the same reward that Jesus did. We get a share of His inheritance. We will rise up again in glory in the resurrection. When God makes the heavens, new heavens and the new earth. So what else can we do but worship the Lamb who is slain? And that Lamb deserves the praise and glory of every single nation. That's why Ruthie and I are galled to go out into the Bulgarian people. God deserves, Jesus deserves the praise of the Bulgarian people. What else can we do but go? And if this is our model, if this is the head of our church, the one whom we are living our entire lives... Can we not also take up our cross and follow him among ourselves? Love each other with a kind of humble, self-sacrificial love, even in the midst of our suffering that he showed. Because that's what our salvation looks like. That's the salvation that God has given to the Son, that we should love each other well. The salvation that God the Father has given to the Son is also the praise of all the nations. Isn't it amazing that God the Father has invited us to be a part of the reward for His Son? That God the Father is fulfilling the promises of His Son through us, in and through us in love? Empowered completely by the Holy Spirit. And you know what? If the Father makes a promise, He is going to keep it. So work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Don't you dare take it lightly. Because that is God working in you. To will and to work for his good pleasure. And his good pleasure is that we would love each other. And that all the nations would know who Jesus is. And give him praise and honor and glory. Your salvation was costly. Don't take it lightly. There's a story of two missionary brothers. Moravians who heard about the plight of 3,000 slaves in the Caribbean. Their living conditions was terrible, and to make matters worse, the slave owner refused to allow preachers to come in and preach the gospel to them, which meant that they had no hope in this life and no hope in the life to come. And So these Moravian brothers hatched a plan to sell themselves into slavery, So that they could have the opportunity to preach the gospel to them. And as they were getting in the boat and departing, their family and friends wept on shore. And these brothers held up their hands and said, May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Jesus deserved the worship of those slaves. Jesus deserves the worship of all the nations. Jesus deserves your love for each other. God has promised it. Will you be a part of that? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the incarnation. Thank you so much that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, was born to a virgin. Live the life of a common laborer, that he taught us, he healed us, he ushered in the kingdom of God, that he died for us, that he rose again, and that we who by faith believe in him can be saved, that our sins can be forgiven, that we can be changed from the inside out, that we have been adopted into this family, and that we have the Holy Spirit to empower us for this work. Thank you that the Son is either interceding at your right hand at this minute for us. And thank you so much that we have the hope that He is coming back. Please help us to live our entire lives, especially this week, in light of the fact that Jesus is returning. And help us not to forget it. We pray these things in Jesus' name, Father. Amen.
1: Jesus trusted the Father. Uh, We saw that this morning in our text, that Jesus trusted the Father completely uh, and obeyed Him even to the point of death. He humbled Himself uh, by taking on flesh and suffering uh, on our behalf at the cross. And so Jesus uh, is uh, rewarded for this in the sense of uh, that He reigns and rules right now. Uh, at the right hand of God. He rules over heaven and earth. He is Lord of heaven and earth, even now. And one day when he will return, he will return one day. We do believe that here, that Jesus will return and all will confess uh, that Christ is Lord to, to the glory of God. And this all takes place because of Jesus' humility uh, that he took on flesh, that he was obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross, even so. And so, Christ's humility, in one sense, led to the cross. And that's what we come to celebrate this morning, is uh, what Christ has done on our behalf. Uh, That Christ was humble, that he was obedient, uh, all the way uh, to the cross. And so, God has raised Jesus to new life. And so, we celebrate this today, uh, Christ's death and his resurrection, and what that means for us. Because if we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, knowing that we cannot save ourselves... We can't do the work, but Christ has done the work. And we put our trust and our hope completely in Him. uh, Then we have forgiveness and we have life in His name. And so that's what we come to celebrate this morning. uh, The servant's obedience, Christ's obedience uh, on our behalf. And so if this describes you this morning, if you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus, knowing you cannot ch- uh, save yourself, then come and take and eat and drink of these elements, that your faith might be strengthened, and you might be encouraged as you, as you go out from here this day. Uh, and at the same time, if you're with us this morning and you don't know who Jesus is, or you're trying to figure out who He is, uh, then we ask you to take this time to, uh, to think about who He is and what He's done and what that means uh, for your life. And even use the prayers uh, in the back of our bulletin to help guide you through this time. Uh, but if you are, are, are looking to Jesus, putting your faith and your hope completely in Him, uh, you've been a member in good standing in a church that preaches and proclaims the gospel, and come and take and eat of this meal uh, that your faith, that our faith might be strengthened. Let me pray for us now. Father, we are, humbled. we are humbled by your sacrifice on our behalf. And so we pray now and ask as we take of these elements that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen our faith as we take of this meal. That we might be reminded of the humility and the obedience that you had that led to the cross. And we ask and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.